we emphasized earlier how uh, we are encouraging <coughs> on this retreat the exploration of uh, you know different you could say orientations or directions in practice and how they can work um, together flexibly and synergistically and um, uh, we can move between them uh, those practices so the orientation to um, samadhi to cultivating that harmonization that um, sense of well-being in the energy body and the mind uh, the awareness of filling that out and enjoying that and resting in that alive bright <coughs> different qualities of energy there uh, we talked about um, a sort of s- uh, development of sensitivity and skill in relation to the emotions in the moment and using the energy body for that and various possibilities there and we also obviously talking about imaginal practice and again anchored in the energy body and the expansion of that into um, in, into cosmopoesis etc so just to uh, say a bit more about various practices and these directions and <coughs> fill that out a little bit more for practice. And uh, actually start with something we touched on already. You know, oftentimes that word uh, samadhi gets um, translated as concentration and and then has so much baggage with it, uh, so much pressure and heaviness and um, sort of narrow-mindedness, really, in various kind of ways. So often, so often a person is practicing, people who have been practicing years sometimes, um, something's happened. When they sit down, their primary objective of their meditation is to try and um, have less thoughts. And if they can ever have no thoughts, that would be fantastic. And so the whole, the whole objective or thrust or direction and also measurement of the meditation is around how much thought there is. And the less the better. And with all that, unfortunately, can very easily go a whole um, uh, frustration uh, festering there with that idea and a whole self-judgment, uh, ju- uh, judgmentation coming in, all of that. If I think of that, even even if I don't quite realize that's what I'm doing, if that becomes the primary um, purpose or aim of my meditation, to, to have less thought, if that becomes the measure, this is a mistake. Even when I'm trying for samadhi practice, that, that, that's my orientation, that's my what I'm cultivating in the moment, and if that's how I'm thinking about it, it's a mistake. It's much more important, the relation with thinking, the relationship with a thought in the moment. Not the presence or absence of thought, or even how thick and dense uh, thoughts are, how much of a a thicket in the mind of thoughts, you know. Not so much that, but the relationship with um, any thought that is present. Is the awareness hooked onto a thought? It's sort of... Um, hooks into it and then gets dragged along with the thought. Where actually we're grasping at a thought, even if the thought I don't like, I want to get rid of it. There's a kind of grasping. We're hooked and dragged. Is that what's happening? Is that the relationship, or is there less hooking? So a thought can arise and pass. 
this is a spectrum, how much hooking, how, how little hooking, uh, how tight is the hooking. But that's, uh, there's other aspects of the relationship with thought to do with belief and uh, what we believe of, of thoughts, etc. But, but it's the relationship that's primary. Uh, not so much the presence or the absence of thought. Secondly, um, you know, to make the reduction of thinking or even the absence of thinking a kind of holy grail that we're chasing um, would, would be a mistake for, for a number of reasons, actually. But there's a second reason, which is, um, I mentioned this already, about we want to allow a subtlety of attention. Now, we're not making a hierarchy here. It's not only subtlety or we're trying to be subtle all the time. There's no hierarchy. But what we don't want to do is we don't want to prevent subtlety of attention. So very often people are practicing in ways without realizing that it, that, that are actually preventing the awareness to become more subtle. So it just stays at one level. Uh, in the way they're breathing, or the way they're paying attention, or the direction they're trying to pursue, or the or the um, the way they're holding the effort, or, or many factors. But very often, what happens is people prevent a deepening in subtlety in the moment. Now, by subtlety, remember, um, I don't mean a microscopic uh, focus of awareness. I don't mean being able to see all the atoms and moments of sensation very, very quickly or very uh, finally, um, all that's okay and useful to a certain extent, um, to a limited extent. Um, it, it has a downside and that it re- reinforces those certain perceptions. If I emphasize it too much, if I have a, a way of thinking about practice in the path that emphasizes those kind of perceptions too much, um, it will tend to reify those perceptions as a reality. This is the basic reality. And also just tend to, for the mind to keep seeing that way. We've touched on this. So when I say subtlety on this retreat, what I really mean, as, as I've said already, is um, uh, subtler, more refined um, uh, vibrations, energies, qualities, emotions, resonances, etc. They become available to consciousness, to notice, to feel all that, to discern between all that, um, a subtler attention is able to um, uh, receive, perceive, uh, and navigate all that. Now, when there is less thinking, at the times there is less thinking in meditation, there is the opportunity for an increase in subtlety. It's not a guarantee because I still have to. I still have to tune to that subtlety, uh, tune to what is more subtle, more refined. We talked about this a little bit. Um, so, but when there is less thinking, there is the opportunity for an, a deepening, an increase in the subtlety and the refinement of attention. And then, what can be, uh, what can be perceived that is more subtle. Um, and so many of these things, the causality works both ways. There's a mutual dependency. When there is more subtlety, there tends to be less thinking. Um, but that's a side benefit. The less thinking is a side benefit. Again, it's not the goal. Um, it's. I would say, especially for this retreat and for a lot of the practices we're talking about, if it was a samadhi retreat or a metta retreat or a... Um, 
uh, emptiness or a, a imaginal retreat or, or whatever, um, it would be the subtlety that, as I said, we're, we're wanting to allow that without a hierarchy. We don't want to. We don't want to be doing something that prevent that prevents that. But um, we need, as I said, to, to tune, to incline, to. Um, to the subtlety sometimes of perceptions. Uh, but be careful of the aim because we don't want to replace subtlety as a, then that's the goal, that's what I get frustrated about. Oh, my mind is so unsubtle, I'm so gross, etc., etc., why can't I? So we don't want to cling too tightly to whatever aim we have, in whatever direction we have in practice, and careful of making um, too much of a hierarchy there, or any hierarchy really. But we don't want to, if we put it this way, we want to have access to subtlety as well as uh, the not subtle, the gross, the obvious, and all that. Now we've said um, before, I said before, you know, concentration, as in focus, is is not our interest and our goal on this retreat. It, you know, it, it has its place to be able to keep the mind steady on something, to investigate it, to, to tune, etc., but it's not really the goal. What I'm more interested in is this kind of agility of the mind to switch ways of looking, even for a few moments sometimes, um, uh, and and trusting that and wanting wanting that to um, become more accessible in one in one's life, in the busyness of one's life, in a working life, in a life with lots of demands, etc on the street, in the city, etc. Um, so there's this, it's this agility and flexibility of the ways of looking that we talk so much about, rather than how much can I stick my mind to one object and keep it there without, uh, with a minimum of thinking and uh, movement. Yes, of course, that has its place, um, but it tends to get way overemphasized, as, as we talked about. And secondly, um, on this retreat, I'm interested in something... Um, that's not the primary interest. Rather than focusing and closing down on something, in a way we could say openness is a big part of what we're interested in on this retreat. And there's a lot to say about that word and it's also its relationship with samadhi, etc. I just want to touch on a couple of things here. Um, so we, we're interested in uh, an openness of view, an openness of mind, an openness of perception. Is my uh, Are my... Uh, range of ways of looking open and also an openness of heart this is something we'll come back to the openness of heart is very important for what we're doing and very important obviously in one's life and in practice in general we can also wear open eyes. Now we tend in this tradition to people tend to practice with the eyes closed. You sit down you close your eyes in this tradition. Other traditions they keep them open. If you want, experiment with this on this retreat. Eyes open, eyes closed. Um, st- you might start a practice with the eyes open because it might be that there's some kind of cosmopoesis there already. Already, and we don't notice it. I just shut the eyes. I, I, I don't notice that already the world or the people around me um, look, I'm sensing them differently. I'm sensing them through the lens of uh, a cosmopoetic lens, uh, some particular cosmopoetic lens. And then I open, I tune into that, I feel it, I enjoy it, I, I, I uh, uh, relate, um, 
come into relationship with that and let that affect me. And then, then maybe I, I, I gradually close my eyes, see if I can take that um, in with my eyes closed. Keep it going with my eyes closed. Or the other way around, I start with my eyes closed, something strong happens um, in, with an image or, or something like that, and then maybe I want to open my eyes and see what effect that has on my perception of the world. See if there's a cosmopoesis spilling over from the image or the perception of the energy body or or, or often um, similarly with emptiness practice is very important. Here at the beginning of the tree we've got the open schedules of people coming and going and it might be just too much at the beginning of a sitting to start with the open eyes if, uh, if, if there's a lot of coming and going. Um, but see what's helpful. Careful here of restlessness. You know, I'm opening eyes and I'm closing them and opening them. And actually what's happening is it's just a movement of restlessness in the mind. So always the question, you know, what's helpful? And the, and the attitude, the, the uh, um, stance of experimentation and really seeing what, what helps. You know, if it's restlessness, it doesn't help to just act it out. It would be help- helpful to just choose one, eyes open or closed, and just, just stay with it for a while. Let things settle a while. You know, when the eyes are open, it's still possible to have um, what we might call purely intrapsychic images. My eyes are open, I see the room, but in my mind's eye, so to speak, I'm seeing something else. If I say intrapsychic, it... Uh, Seems, seems to imply a, a, a rigid belief in a division between the psyche and the world, and, and in a way I'm really not implying that, but uh, I can't think of a better word by now. Intrapsychic, I think you know what I mean. Uh, just within the mind. So even though my eyes are open, I, it's still possible to have intrapsychic images. And with my eyes open, of course, it's possible to um, see and sense others and the world in, a, in, in some kind of uh, cosmopoesis or through some kind of cosmopoetic lens. And, and closed eyes, just the same. In other words, both avenues are, um, are open, whether the eyes are closed or not. With the eyes closed, of course, I can tune into an intrapsychic image, a purely intrapsychic image, but I can also sense the world around me. Okay, maybe not visually, maybe have an inner visual sense of it, but I might be hearing and feeling in my body and smelling, etc. Uh, and, that, and that sensing of the world may be a cosmopoetic sense, a cosmopoetic sensation, perception. So eyes open, eyes closed, you know, avenues are open here for what can happen in e- either way. You know, really to have an experimental uh, approach to practice doesn't just mean flipping around between things, it means adding the question, what makes this or that work right now? Or what is preventing this or that working? And this is a, a whole other level of question, actually understanding, um, if you like, the... Um, the mechanisms of practice. If um, my eyes are open and I'm tr- if, if trying to encourage a cosmopoetic perception, it's not happening. Do I understand why it's not happening? I mean, sometimes it's not possible to understand these things, but oftentimes it is. Oh, it's not happening because of because of this. Or if something is happening and it is working well, what are the factors that are actually supporting that in the moment? So there's a kind of meditative research going on that's actually um, really important. The Buddha talks about this in the Pali Canon when he talks about hindrances 
and um, those kind of things, factors of enlightenment. It's also talking about a real active, engaged interest um, in the experimentation, discovering what feeds what, to use his words, and what starves what. The same thing with all these more extended practices. There's really this, can be this interest there in, in the question. How come this works now? What's missing? What's needed? What helps? So, you know, one of the things that's significant, for, um, that for instance, makes um, an, an imaginal practice uh, or, or working with a particular image at any moment or with a particular cosmopoiesis is the relationship with the object sensed. So if, for example, um, my eyes are open and I'm trying to gently encourage this cosmopoiesis or allow that seems to be there, um, if I reify too much either the, um, the object in any way, what I'm looking at or sensing, taking it as real, taking this perception as real, or if I'm grasping at it, that's so attractive or it's uh, repulsive and there's this too much gross grasping of pushing or, or trying to cling on, keep the experience or chase after it, this will, these reification and gross grasping will tend to, to dissolve, destroy, um, inhibit the cosmopoesis, destabilize it. Or again, if, again, if I'm, same thing, uh, open eyes, looking at the world, sensing the world around me, and trying to gently um, encourage a cosmopoesis, um, and I lose contact with the energy body and lose the sensitivity with the energy body, um, again, it, it probably won't be helpful. If there's any kind of even subtle, so to speak, leaning towards uh, whatever is, so to speak, out there, even subtle, that subtle leaning, it's a kind of grasping. And uh, the, the imaginal realm will fade, the cosmopoiesis will fade because of these factors. It's a relationship with what's, um, what's being perceived. But we're interested in openness, and, and another kind of openness has to do with um, the, the, the sounds that, that uh, surround us in the course of the day, in a meditation, or, or, or whatever. And so the sounds of others, um, humans making, are they sounds or are they noises? Um, which often has a more uh, negative connotation, that word. Are they seen as distractions from my meditation, my concentration? Uh, and again, something shrunken in the whole view there. That whole view is quite tight, quite um, impoverished, actually. Um, and in the course of what we're doing, and we'll, we'll talk about this more and more this week, but, you know, um, here's the noises of human beings or whatever around me or far away over the fields or in the street or whatever it is. And rather than try and exclude them, to um, preserve my concentration, so one's in a battle with those sounds, is it possible to, um, to encourage this openness to include the sounds? Now, there's all kinds of ways of doing that, but on this retreat, where we're focusing more on this kind of imaginally-based re-enchantment, so can I include them, but actually shift the view of them um, to, to hear, sense uh, these sounds differently? So these human noises... Um, are the sounds of angels, or the sound of the divine 
speech, if you like, of mantra, uh, can I actually shift that view and include them? Maybe that becomes then the, 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 the focus of the meditation, is that this shift in view, this enchanted view of these sounds and of these people, uh, whoever might not even know who it is, making these sounds. Uh, seeing them, I'm sensing them, I'm playing with the conception and entertaining the, the idea that they are angels. What does that mean? I, I don't know. Does it matter? No. What matters is you can feel it come alive. You can feel it change the relationship and that enchantment come in and that beauty and that sacredness and the openness and the softening. So there's all kinds of possibilities here. Uh, And there's possibilities that don't have anything to do with the kind of enchantment that we're talking about that are also very skillful. But there's something about the openness there. Opening to include and opening the view. Or rather shifting the view. But more generally speaking, as uh, there's a kind of openness, as, as we've already emphasised and already just just in this talk, we're saying this flexibility of practices and flexibility between practices. So the energy body is always the kind of um, touch point, the, uh, the, the, the aspect of things, of, of uh, the dimension of our being, uh, that we don't want to really ever lose, to, you know, we want to keep um, at the... Uh, uh, keep in touch with whatever practice we're doing. So, but we can move between uh, just focusing on the emotions in different ways, working skillfully with the emotions, both the beautiful ones and the and the difficult ones, you know, um, and even very subtle ones that are neither. neither. That's also uh, we've talked about this in other talks that you've listened to already um, from the other retreats. Um, but there, there's ways that just staying with the emotions, whatever's happening there, working skillfully with whatever is happening, gross, subtle, um, painful, difficult, whatever, um, can be very, you know, really, really fruitful practice in itself. So that's one avenue, that's one kind of practice. Imaginal practice, cosmopoetic practice, the, the, the um, direction of samadhi, all of that. Uh, and so we can move flexibly and sensitively and find out what's helpful at any time uh, moving between these practices. You know, sometimes one of them is just the wrong thing to, to be, or rather not a helpful thing to be trying to, doing, to do. We're bashing our heads against a brick wall or getting too tight with it or something or other. And actually it would be helpful to shift to one of the others. But uh, at this point we can open up, at this point on the retreat we can open up a little bit to allow more images and uh, and then move flexibly between practices, always noticing um, the energy body and, and sensitive to the resonances if we are working with images, sensitive to the soul-making, the qualities of soulfulness, emotion, etc., um, uh, particularly in and through the energy body, but also really in the whole psyche. So a little bit about... Um, Imaginal practice and uh, and cosmopoesis. A friend of Catherine's who's a Jungian um, Jungian analyst. Uh, uh, they were they were talking. Catherine related to me and and said that uh, he he had said to her that um, what they call the practice of active imagination, which is somewhat similar to what I might call imaginal practice. Um, uh, he, he said, if I remember rightly, that it, it's just a grace. Uh, it's a grace when that happens. It happens spontaneously, in other words. There's nothing we can do to k- 
kind of um, make that happen, this kind of entering into the imaginal realm, if you like. But this is something that um, I, I, I don't agree with, and I'd like to encourage a different um, attitude to that. Um, because, sure, this all the images arise spontaneously, and we enter the imaginal realm, so to speak, spontaneously. Cosmopoesis can also arise spontaneously. But definitely also there's, uh, we can practice deliberately uh, we can engage imaginal practice deliberately and cosmopoetic practice deliberately. We can incline the uh, psyche and, and the perception, the way of looking, and, and uh, there's the possibility of finding, finding attitudes and factors and things that we can do that actually support the opening of the door let's say, to the imaginal realm and the crossing of that threshold into the territory of soul-making. And we can actually um, support a shift in uh, the mode of being and a shift in the, in the ways of looking um, to, to open into imaginal practice and cosmic voices. And when I reflect on this and kind of notice uh, carefully what's going on, I see that there are we could we could talk about um, or highlight four aspects or four factors that um, support and enable this more deliberate opening of the door of the imaginal and the cosmopoesis. Um, they're not completely separate, as so often with these with these kind of things. They feed each other. They're mutually dependent. They're mutual dependent arisings. Um, but but it's helpful, I think, to, to separate them and to say a little bit about each. So the first is a, um, fabricating less, a decrease in the moment, uh, in other words, in that stretch of practice for some period, um, a, a, a decrease in, in, in the fabrication of perception in general. And that can come out uh, of samadhi practice, which, which the way I would think about it is almost by definition, involves some degree of less fabrication. It's not the way most people think about samadhi practice. It's not the way most people think about practice, period. We've touched on this. Um, but it could come through metta, it could come through emptiness, it could come um, through the imaginal, it could come... Basically, it comes from less clinging. And I'm using clinging in a broad sense here. Um, when there's less clinging, there will be less fabrication of perception in, in that moment. And that movement into fabrication, it kind of... it, it as we're saying, makes everything solutio, liquid. Um, uh, it loosens everything. And that loosening allows a number of other factors. So some degree of less fabricating is a factor involved in and, and supporting this opening the door of the imaginal realm and cosmopoiesis, some, some degree. So that's the first one. The second one is what I would like to call very loosely synesthesia, uh, which is a word that you, some of you may know. It, it, uh, I, I don't mean literal clinical synesthesia. I mean, um, it, it, what, it, what it really means is a, a kind of mixing and blending of the senses so that it can sometimes seem like I um, see sounds or I um, whatever... Uh, uh, hear, um, hear a, a bodily, uh, bodily sensation, or feel that in the body, or there's a mixing um, of of all or some of of the senses. As as um, it actually, as it gets deeper, all the six senses, mind, 
uh, sight, smell, taste, touch, and sound, um, uh, body sense, um, all those six senses, they kind of gather more into one. So it's almost like to, to, to think is to feel the thought in the body somehow. To hear a sound is somehow... Uh, to see, it's, it's all six senses become one. You can't even separate between what one thinks and uh, hears or sees or, or, or feels in, in, the, in the energy body field. Um, there's a there's a it, this is a continuum, and gradually um, this will happen anyway as fabrication gets less. Six senses that seem so separate, each with their own domains, sense fields, etc. Gradually become more sort of one in the same uh, sense field, um, and eventually, um, when there's really very little fabricating, the, the, the senses are uh, they do not arise. Sensation does not arise. There, there is the unfabricating of um, vedana, sensation, and perception. But um, but it also happens in imaginal practice. Uh, this this synesthesia a little bit um, or, or or a lot. Um, Okay, so first, lessening fabrication. Second, a degree of synesthesia, uh, what we might call synesthesia. Third is um, a stance and posture, if you like, of the heart. So this is, again, involved in and supports. So it's a factor of, but it's also a contributing factor of imaginal practice and cosmopoesis. A, a, a posture, an attitude of the heart of, I would say, receptivity, but also some some kind of um, humility and even surrender. Uh, these I'm going to say more about this, but the, this heart aspect is is very important. So heart is not soul. Yes, yeah, soul, if you like, includes heart. That's what I'm saying here. Soul needs to include heart. But heart doesn't always mean soul or soul-making. Sometimes people ask themselves, what do I really want, what do I really want? And they come up with the answer, love, or something. And, and, they, and they mean, uh, you know, it's, what do you mean? Do you mean just a heart quality? Or, do, or you actually, because we're not used to thinking in this way, we don't think, actually, what I also want is soul. When I say love, I m- m- probably don't just mean a heart quality, I mean a soul element of that love as well. I've talked about that elsewhere, so I'm not going to come back to it. But a third factor here, a third aspect, is this, is, is um, uh, yeah, if we say an attitude or a, a state or stance of the heart. And the fourth is, is imaginal perception itself and, and tuning to imaginal perceptions, which I've talked about on other talks, other retreats. These four aspects. Now of these four, um, the first and the third are things that we can do. Uh, we can actively uh, trigger them, engage them, move in that direction um, that might, for some of you, sound like a, a, a too too uh, too much of a pipe dream or uh, something that's not accessible now. So let's say we can learn as we develop practice to to do these uh, to fabricate less and less. We we learn that skill, if you like, and similarly we learn how to open the heart in the moment, just shifting something so that the heart opens, so that there is humility, surrender, receptivity, openness, that posture of the heart. 
and that those two movements of fabricating less and opening the heart in the moment um, become easier for us as, as we develop in practice. Uh, that's, for some of you will know that, um, and, and for others, you know, it's something to, to, to realize, take it on faith or, or whatever, um, that that's the case. Um, but these movements, fabricating less and opening the heart, if you like, in, in receptivity, in, in humility, um, we can do these, and, and that doing of those two allows the opening of the imaginal, the, the fourth factor, um, in ways that affect the soul more deeply, that are more soul-making. In other words, if, if, if there's... Um, too rigid a fabrication being clung to, and if the heart isn't open, the imaginal won't open so deeply and won't affect us so deeply. Um, but these two factors, the lessening fabrication and the opening of the heart, also will, um, especially the lessening fabrication, will um, allow some degree of synesthesia. And uh, what I'm calling synesthesia, this, this mixing and inter, sort of interrelating, almost but blending and communication of the senses, if you like, um, and that so-called synesthesia can then it functions then at that time as a different mode of knowing. In other words, the modes of knowing that we know are the six senses. We figure something out through thinking, or we. Um, uh, intuit it, or whatever, or we see it, or we know it through hearing because we've heard it, what, whatever. But in a way, when there's a synesthesia, we can talk about a different mode of knowing. So, um, just to give an example, you know, with with being so ill and and uh, having, um, well, at least some, most of the doctors um, giving giving uh, not a very good prognosis at all um, for for my situation. And so I have this illness, I have this cancer, and um, and I'm sometimes going to practice and sitting or whatever, and um, sometimes it's like actually starting with an attitude of humility. If I'm if I'm practicing in relate something in relation to my illness, maybe I'm not feeling well or or something that day, um, and I'm okay. I take somehow my illness is is part of my meditation theme, and actually starting with um, a, a felt, deep acknowledgement in, in the soul of, of humi- humility or a stance of humility, I recognize that I cannot um, cure myself of cancer. And it's possible the doctors can't either, very possible. Um, and, but there's a sense of, I cannot do it. I cannot do it on my own. Uh, it's not something in my power. And in that there's a recognition, there's a recognition of humility. It's I do not, I, I cannot do this on my own. Um, and with that, from that, um, a step further is then, if I'm doing imaginal practice, is like, um, of from that humility of 
openness and surrender to let's call it a God, I'll put it in inverted commas if you, if you prefer it, uh, openness and surrender to a God, and, and in a way it is in inverted commas because there is this seeing image as image, and this looseness, if you like, and non-fixation, non-reification on any idea of divinity, is what we're talking about a lot in this retreat. But out of the humility, um, then there's a, f- a further movement of the gesture of, 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 of the psychic attitude of openness and surrender to, let's call it a god or angel or deity, um, whatever, some, something that is numinous and other, some imaginal figure. And this uh, needs to happen first before the, that image or that sense of that deity or figure comes alive. Uh, this openness and surrender to the deity that I'm talking about that includes and involves a deep, deep acceptance of a surrender to uh, what will be um, to their will, if you like, if to use a certain language. So it's not a kind of technique to try and fix or guarantee some kind of deal to get what I want. It's more about uh, an opening, profound opening of, of the entire being, the heart and the soul, to that deity and to the way that permeates my being and affects my life. And the events of my life and my death. But again, the humility and then the openness and surrender to the figure need to come first. They, they give it the aliveness. Not, not always, but often. And then all kinds of things are possible. From that, from that openness of the heart, the stance of the heart, and the, the imaginal has come alive. And then maybe the synesthesia comes. So for example, um, many, many examples could give here, but um, for example, um, I hear the bird song outside, and and I hear this bird song. The heart, the the soul hears it as a blessing, uh, b- b- blessing the, the cosmos in all kinds of ways. We'll, we'll talk a lot, hopefully, on this retreat of what, what does even that word mean, blessing. But an element of the blessing is there. They are healing me through the bird song. Is uh, some kind of divine or angelic. Uh, has an angelic function as healing. And it's as if the sound, the beautiful sound of the bird song, um, I'm open to it, and it, it somehow feels with the synesthesia that it's this sound, the, the, the fragments of, of melody, etc., are reweaving or restructuring through sound, they're restructuring my energy body. And so I, I'm hearing it, but I'm also feeling that, I'm feeling it as healing, I'm feeling some kind of re-sculpting or rewiring or reshaping, reweaving of, of this energy body, and opening to that, and the beauty of that, and the blessing of that, and the, the, the divinity of it, and the preciousness of it. So there's a kind of synesthesia then between the sound and the body sense. Uh, they almost feel the same thing. The sound is the is the reweaving of the energy body, and uh, something very very beautiful. There's many examples one, one could give. 
And similarly, you know, some of you will be familiar with tantric practices have been taught these kind of things in other traditions, etc., with the yidam, with the tantric deity, uh, Tara or whoever it is that, that uh, you, you're practicing with. Um, and, uh, but it's a, it's a similar thing, you know, sometimes, uh, or rather I would say, the, the devotion the surrender, the openness, the humility are vital and indispensable aspects or factors in that in that practice if you're practicing with uh, a tantric deity. Um, and usually we they need to be there first, these qualities of the heart. It's like that's what I need to take care of first. Not always, but but often. Um, and I need to actually feel them feel what that feels like, the devotion, the openness, the surrender in the heart, in the energy body. And then uh, a door opens. That op- that, that's part of opening the door. So, you know, in Tibetan tradition, they talk a lot about preliminaries or prerequisites. It's a similar thing here. We're talking about something in the heart um, actually needs to open, soften, shift, whatever we might say. And without that, a door, a door into the imaginal uh, as something alive will not, will, not, um, will not open. And without that, without that um, genuine aliveness um, that comes from the heart opening, um, you know, those kind of practices just become exercises in visualization or exercise in concentration and focusing the mind on the visual image or something, they, they're quite dry and um, barren and actually un- unproductive. So that the heart and its attitude or posture uh, in the moment is crucial. In, in that moment, it's uh, crucial, literally. It, take, it, take the practice this way or that way. Crucial from crooks, cross. So that, uh, uh, you know, same applies, all this applies to um, working with the imaginal figure of love we did in the, in the, in the meditation the other day, or some, some uh, Im- imaginal figure that's uh, loving you, that you're receiving love from, any flavor of love there, any quality, any uh, character of love. And remember, you know, the, the appearance of that imaginal figure may be very ethereal. It may have a body of light or a particular colored body or red or blue or whatever. Or it could be um, very human in its appearance. It could be animal, could be, uh, you know, a, a deity. It could be very solid as opposed to a body of light. It could be someone I even know, friend or lover or whatever, or someone I don't know, uh, if it's human. Maybe the features in the image are clear, maybe they're more vague, but what's uh, clear, and even if it's not, it could be not visual at all, remember, it could be just a sense, but what's clear is the character, the qualities of presence um, that this particular imaginal figure um, has, their being, their particularity, their personhood is sensed, even if it's not, uh, the features are not, are not clear visually. That's what characterizes imaginal practice, a sort of um, uniqueness of personhood, um, uh, of of character, if you like, in the image. Now, and if these four aspects, four factors are there, the lessening fabrication, what I'm calling synesthesia, the the, uh, 
attitude of heart and the imaginal perception and tuning, if that's all there, and uh, then a lot is possible. All kinds of um, avenues of experience, directions, um, become possible in imaginal practice, cosmic oasis, tantric practice, whatever. So in repeating a mantra, for example, or working with a, a tantric deity yoga, or um, any kind of imaginal figure, as we've been talking about, or or a cosmopoesis practice, um, yeah, you know, we could uh, kind of de- delineate sort of three gradations, if you like. Cautious of this word hierarchy. Let's say three. Let's d- discern three um, <clears throat> possibilities there. Um, so. Uh, there can be, you know, in 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 the mantra that one's um, reciting or chanting, <clears throat> or in the tantric uh, relationship with the imaginal figure of the tantric deity, there can, there's there's a kind of invocation that is a supplication. As I'll talk about in a minute, what that means is asking this, um, a kind of praying and opening to uh, the other. Um, opening to this other that's bigger than me, surrendering to uh, what is, yes, larger uh, than me, more powerful. There's a humility there. There's this, the beauty of that um, invocation, supplication, opening to what's larger. And then um, as one stays with that, perhaps um, with with that image, with that uh, Cosmopoesis, even or or with the mantra, <coughs> um, there can be a harmonizing. And this is particularly the case with um, devotional yoga to an imaginal figure or a tantric deity. There can be a harmonizing of one's being in that moment with the qualities of the deity invoked. Um, so, for example, uh, Avalokiteshvara. Uh, uh, one harmonizes with with the compassion that that imaginal figure embodies and emanates and radiates, etc. So, or just just by <coughs> holding them in one's imaginal gaze, uh, one starts to harmonize one's energy body, one's emotional body starts to harmonize with those qualities. We absorb them through a harmony that's uh, that comes about through the sustained imaginal. Um, Perceiving and sensing, or uh, might be if we talk in terms of traditional Buddhist tantric deities, Yamantaka um, has this sort of fearless power to destroy uh, what must be destroyed, whether that's illusion or certain um, unhelpful structures or or fear or whatever. Really, uh, actually, uh, in the end, death. uh, the destruction of death through the knowing of of the deathless, of timeless. But uh, that then, in meditating on Yamantaka, it's the fearlessness and the, and the power and the the, um, the the actual the creative destruction, if you like. And these are the qualities that we harmonize with, and the be, the being, our being, gathers and comes into relation. It comes into relationship with those, with the deity, and with those qualities, and harmonizes with those qualities. So there's a kind of sympathetic resonance going on. But even if you like fuller or more complete or deeper than that, there is a kind of um, 
a real sense of fusion or union with or becoming the deity, the imaginal figure, um, so that we uh, experience our body as divine and we look at the other at others and look at the world through the eyes of that divinity, through the eyes of that um, imaginal other. Um, we see and know and sense with their vision, with their perception, with their sensibility, uh, and hear things as they hear. We feel and know as that deity. And because the, the deity sees, in, in a way, lives in a different world, meaning they perceive a different world, through that we're actually, we actually transform the cosmos in doing so. It turns into a cosmopoiesis and reinforces that cosmopoiesis that may be already happening. Um, so that you know, uh, practices of imagining yourself as, as a deity, etc. They uh, it, ultimately they involve more than just imagining that you have a red body or imagining that you're powerful or whatever. One actually feels that one becomes that deity. Um, uh, one enters into that deity's experience of body, uh, of of world, of matter of time, of other, all of that. Um, so all of this is possible. Uh, you could say when, when these factors are there, all these uh, doors and are possible and in many different directions as well. Not just levels, but also directions. Um, and it can happen in, yeah, as I said, in many different ways. So... Uh, for example, when, when there's all this hap- these factors, these four factors happening, less fabrication, synesthesia, the, uh, the heart, uh, the stance, the open, humble, receptive uh, heart, and the um, <coughs> imaginal perception and tuning. And, and in all that is implicit that we're with the energy body and the whole space of the energy body that will... In, in becoming less fabricated, as the first factor, is the energy body may become lighter or more kind of liquid, if you like. Um, and sometimes in, in this uh, imaginal we can actually become one with, um, as I said, the, the, the deity or the qualities or the energy or the essence of that imaginal figure. Um, or even one with the, with the theophany of the cosmos around you, one with the cosmopoesis. Um, it's as if those there's um, a communion, if we borrow that word, a communion, an influx of those energies and essences, so it actually becomes one. The body and the being, if you like, uh, merge with that, with that cosmopoesis. Very, very particular, um, or with that imaginal figure. Now, often that happens just spontaneously when these four factors are present, when the energy body awareness, one's opening, tuning to the imaginal. Um, one of the things that can happen is this kind of, um, if you like, uh, communion or union. And sometimes that can happen very suddenly in a flash. Something's transformed uh, or uh, opens out into this union in, in almost it feels like a split second. Other times it can happen much more gradually once uh, transitioning into this more uh, merged state or state of communion with the cosmopoiesis or, or the, the figure. So either way. Um, and 
as I said, in 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 doing that, either becoming one with the imaginal figure or one with the cosmic voices, there is this um, transubstantiation that happens um, through our perception. The world, the cosmos, feels is sensed to be to be different. It's it's uh, we have a uh, an altered image of of that is is there. And so I'm thinking actually now about Holy Communion or the Eucharist. These are in in the Catholic churches uh, and some of the other churches. Um, this is regarded as as a transubstantiation of matter. It becomes divine. This bread, this wine becomes divine. What we're saying, we're putting that in the in the realm of perception. But there is a Holy Communion with that imaginal figure and also with the. Um, the cosmos made divine in the perception, uh, just as in as in something like the Eucharist or other other rituals. It's a transubstantiation through communion that's happening through imaginal practice when we take care of these uh, aspects and factors that feed that practice. This is one of the possibilities um, that can open for us. Very beautiful. So please, just to make clear, we don't have to grasp at any of these um, experiences that I'm talking about or so-called stages or levels or force them to happen. I'm, in a way, just mapping territory. If we just practice and open, all kinds of wonderful things will happen. And we don't need to grasp particularly at this or that, I don't think. Um, Take care of the conditions and uh, the path in its fullness, in its, its wideness, uh, its breadth and its depth will, will open for us. You know, um, All kinds of surprises, I think, in imaginal practice. Um, so we don't n- really have to engineer this or that experience. Um, do this for a little while and you will be very, um, very surprised and very pleasantly surprised. And not hard, it's not easy to predict exactly what will happen. But there are there are things we can delineate and point out as part of the map. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.